Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus' message to seven churches uh, 2,000 years ago, but it's a message that is very relevant to us today as well. Today we come to church number four, the church in Thyatira. And so our scripture is Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18, down through the end of the chapter. This is God's word to us this morning. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer, suffer intensely unless they repent of her, way, of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations." That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding. And Father God, I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to bring afresh to each of us gathered here in these moments in this place, those who are watching online now or at a later date. I pray for your Spirit to bring to bear your truth into our world. What is it that we need to hear from you this day, Lord God? What is the instruction? What is the call to repentance what is the promise that we need to take hold of, that we need to grasp, grasp so that we can live faithfully for you in these trying times? Father God, no matter where we may be in relationship to you, for those of us who disbelieve, Lord, I pray for a work of your Spirit to bring evidence and to bring conviction and to bring conversion out of disbelief to believe you are the one who rules and reigns. Lord, for those of us struggling with doubt, Lord, I pray for words of assurance, words of comfort, words of teaching and instruction to move us forward, to draw us closer to you. 
Lord, for those of us who are discouraged because we see the news or we, we ourselves have received news we don't want to, we do not want to accept. Lord, for those of us who are discouraged because life is just not working out the way we want it to be, Lord, may we, through your Spirit, give ourselves entirely to you. Quit trying to hold on, instead just to trust. And Lord, for those of us whose faith is strong and steady and growing, Lord, may we be, through your Spirit, even more emboldened to speak, to stand, Lord, to serve you wholeheartedly. Lord, simply speak to us, and may we listen to what your Spirit has to say to the church at Oak Park. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted up, and it's in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our Lord, O Father God, that we do pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Very special welcome to those joining with us online, especially on the live stream. We're so glad that you're actively participating in the life of Oak Park this day. For those watching the recorded version, thanks also for joining with us. We pray that the Lord works on your heart during this time. Remember, you can communicate with us via text. And we'd love to hear from you, 805-281. almost gave my personal cell number. We are not going to do that online. 805-481-7092. We would love to hear from you on that. All right, let's get to work in God's Word today. We're continuing a series through Revelation, how Jesus speaks to these churches in the first century, but how there is so much that is relevant and applicable to us. Just remember a couple of brief rules for reading through the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is to be read. It is to be embraced. It is not to be feared. It is not to be pushed aside. It is not just to be relegated to obscurity or, or end of, end of, end of days, end of time type of um, hype and, and fear and all of that. We gotta remember the book of Revelation was a letter. It was an epistle written to Christians in the first century, to specific churches. Jesus reveals this is what is now and what is not yet. This is what is still to come. So everything is written is relevant to those in the first century. It wasn't like we have a book of the Bible that was written 2,000 years ago and then is only applicable to the end times generation. There is no warning in Revelation that says, in case of emergency, open the seal of this book. It has been applicable and relevant from the first century to today because the Word of God is living and active. And we say, oh, it's written to a group of churches. Well, then what about us today? Well, most of the New Testament was written to churches or groups of churches or to individuals. It's still applicable and relevant to us today as well. The churches of Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae. The church, the church in Thessalonica, all of these things are applicable to us today because the Word of God is living and active and powerful and still speaks to us in our generation. We've got to remember that the word revelation is the word apocalypse, and it doesn't mean simply end of times or end of days. It means to remove the veil or to uncover. Revelation is written to reveal it is therefore supposed to be much more understandable than we often make it. 
Yes, the symbolic imagery is a little bit foreign to us because of our day and time, but for those in the first century, it was very understandable and very applicable. It's much like today taking symbolism from our time and our day, and, and, and it, it, those symbols are weighted with so much meaning, symbols of nations and symbols of, of world leaders. If we see those in the news or we see those online, we understand exactly what kind of that image bears or what kind of caricature that is. We understand it because it's our time and our context. The language of Revelation is a little bit different for us, but it is still understandable. Revelation is meant to reveal, not to conceal. Then lastly, we got to remember this. It is a revelation. It is a revealing. It is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Christ, of Jesus, who he is, and what he is doing as king, as Lord, as sovereign. The, the focus of the book is to, to be on Jesus. If you come to the book of Revelation just wanting to know what's going to happen next in the news feed or on the timeline of history, you're missing the point. You're, you're missing the forest for the trees. Revelation is to reveal more and more in our lives to us who Jesus truly is. Therefore, the response is always to read Revelation and to worship Jesus more wholeheartedly, to be more devoted, to be more patient in our endurance, to be more vocal in our faithful witness of proclaiming the gospel of to stand stronger in faith and not cower against the powers of this world and the currents of culture. To stand strong for Jesus. And Jesus issues letters to these seven churches in Western Asian, Asian Minor, modern-day Western Turkey. None of these churches exist anymore. The towns, they've all been They've, 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 they've risen up and they've been destroyed. They've been rebuilt. They've been resettled. They've been repopulated. Every one of these areas is now overrun with people. Millions of people live in Turkey. But these churches serve the Lord in their time. Just like every church that comes into existence, every congregation comes into existence, serves the Lord in its generation or perhaps generations. But Jesus still speaks. And there is so much to learn from these churches. Today we come to the church in the city of Thyatira. Thyatira, to be honest, this is the most insignificant of all seven cities. It was the smallest in population. It was not a political center. It was not a religious center. It was a, it was a city with a rough history. It's completely open on a plane. It's indefensible. It got conquered constantly and was a pawn back and forth between different empires. It just happened, it was a city in the wrong place at the wrong time for most of history. And even though it was not a religious center or was not a <clears throat> politically influential center, it did thrive because of its location. It was a commercial trading hub. It was, a, it was an epicenter for all of the different trades and all of the different craftsmen. It was a heavy, it was a heavy uh, textile industry-based city. And as such, the dominant cultural influence in Thyatira were the trade guilds. 
Trade guilds were basically the associations or the unions of all of the different tradesmen. So you'd have the metal workers and you'd have the wool workers, you'd have the, the textile people, you'd have the artisans and the craftsmen. Every single group had their own association and their own union. Very similar today in many of our trades. We have different, we don't call them guilds anymore, but we call them the, you know, the Builders Association or the Trade Workers Guild or you know, this different union, that different union. So very similar to today. Every trade, though, however, in the guild, the guild was, that was your union card. That was how you got status. That was how you got work. You had to be a member of the guild to receive the blessings of the guild, which were the connections and the referrals and all of that. Anybody who's been a, a, um, a contractor knows the importance of those kinds of connections, those kinds of associations, all of your livelihood depends upon your connections to the guild. It's who you're connected to. We always say in life, it's, you know, it's who you know. No. The rule of life is who knows you. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. It's not who you know. It's who knows you. So these trade guilds dominated the culture of the city. They're the ones that were the primary influencers. This is where it gets dicey for Christians. You see, because at that time in the world, every trade guild had a patron god. The god of the metal workers, the god of the weavers, the god of the dyers, the god of the artisans, the craftsmen, the sculptors. Every single guild was actually a religious organization. We have some of those still today. Most of the religiosity of certain social clubs and social groups or, or trade unions has been downplayed. But if you press hard enough, there's certain things there in the histories and all of that. So for Christians to be active in this city, who were the, the workers, the craftsmen, the, the ones who had trades to ply, they had to be involved in these trade guilds. And every trade guild had their patron god. Today we use mascots usually or, or symbols. But back then it was religious figures and religious deities. And as such, they used that as an opportunity to party. Right? So just like every office has a Christmas party, sometimes they get a little bit out of hand, you know, right? The trade guilds were known for the reputation of raucous and very debased parties. Because back then, the, 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 Christ, the framework of Christian morality, which is a framework we come out of in our mindset, was not present then. It was not a part of average everyday life in the world. So basically, it was do whatever you want, do whoever you want, and that's what life was. That was a part of being a tradesman back then as well. Big, raucous, loud, debased parties. And they had those frequently throughout the year. That's the city of Thyatira. That's where the Christians that Jesus writes to and commends for how strongly they have lived and represented him. That's the backdrop of their faithful witness. Thyatira was well known as a center for the wool trade and for metalwork. Those were kind of the two main uh, claims to fame for the city. 
the metal work. Jesus even references, if you notice at the start of these, uh, start of these letters, Jesus always gives a self-description. And the self-description is, is applicable and it is relevant to the, to the, the, the dominant cultural images or the cultural relative, uh, realities of that city. <clears throat> so Jesus describes himself as the one with the eyes of blazing fire. That is the refining furnace for metal. And feet as of burnished bronze. Strong, powerful, set, gleaming. That's the imagery of who Jesus is. Very relevant, very applicable to this, you know, this, in, this, this industrial type of town. We don't know a whole lot about the church. Its founding is not recorded in Scripture. It probably happened when most of the other churches were established early in the, in the, middle, of, or in the middle of the first centuries. Paul was doing his missions work. It was a two-year period where he went and preached in the synagogues and established churches all throughout that part of the world. We do know that Thyatira serves as the home city for the very first Gentile convert to Jesus from Europe, a woman named Lydia. She was living in Philippi at the time. That was one of the more major cities uh, down the road quite a bit from Thyatira. But she grew up in Thyatira. That was where she was from. She was a dealer in purple cloth, which ties in with Thyatira. The, the, the special dyes they had from that area was from a plant that grew richly in that valley. And these dyes were very rich in color. They were there for very esteemed. They were very valued. It was a very nice, luxurious item. And so most likely she was a fairly wealthy woman who sold this purple cloth. Purple, after all, is the color of royalty, as they say. These beautifully dyed cloths from Thyatira were highly regarded. Now, she is not in Thyatira at the time, but because she was wealthy, and we know from elsewhere in Acts that in, in Philippi, when she lived there, she was the first convert, and she helped organize the church. She helped lead the church. The church met in her house in Philippi. And maybe as a wealthier, influential woman, perhaps she was a patron of the church in Thyatira. Maybe she sent money home and helped the Christians get established in that church. We don't know that for certain, but it is certainly possible. So Thyatira does hold an important role in the spread of the gospel the first Gentile convert. Now we come to what Jesus has to say to this church. Jesus is effusive in his praise of this congregation. They have got it together. They have got it going on. They are doing all the right things. They are saying the right things. They are worshiping the right way. They are working hard for the Lord. They are exemplary in their faith and their service and their perseverance, their good deeds and their good works. In fact, of the seven, Jesus has the most effusive praise of any of the churches to the church in Thyatira because they are the ones who are excelling at being the people of Jesus in their city. They have all of the positive qualities of the previous three churches, good deeds, love for one another, demonstrations of faith. They're active in their service, and yes, they are persevering under 
the difficult circumstances of living for Jesus in a very pagan environment. They are persevering. And Jesus has so much positive to say about them because not only are they doing what, they're, what they've always been doing and what they're supposed to be doing as the people of Jesus, they're increasing they are looking for ways to grow and to, to love one another better and to serve Jesus more and to be even more devout in their perseverance. Jesus has a lot of good things to say to this church because they're increasing in all of the good qualities. Nevertheless, as with every good and healthy and strong and solid church, they were not perfect. No church is. In fact, the old conventional wisdom is if you're looking for a new church, I hope you're not, I hope you found it. But if you are, because we're not perfect enough, and you want to go find another church and you, and you see one that from all of the external signs looks perfect, whatever you do, do not join that church. Because see, by you being there, they will become imperfect then. And they're not as perfect as they appear. They just have great publicity. Uh, they just have great spin people. There is no such thing as a perfect church. Every church that is vibrant and healthy and doing good for the Lord God will still struggle and have issues because we are sinners saved by grace. And we continue on with struggling even after our salvation. Every single church is beset with problems because the church is the people. <laughs> and people are problems. Some more than others. And not only... Not only are the people the problems, you know who else is also usually the problems? The pastor. Because the pastor is a sinner. Say, yeah, stop clapping. <laughs> My son had to put his two cents in. Um, pastors are sinners saved by grace as well. We are imperfect people trying to serve a perfect God. That's why there's all the one another commands in the New Testament. Love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, encourage one another. Bear one another's burdens and it goes on and on. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You're excelling in good deeds. You're excelling in love for one another. You are excelling in faith. You are excelling in service. You are excelling in perseverance. But... In all of your good qualities, you're tolerating great evil. A woman in the church assumed the role of prophet or prophetess. Perhaps she was self-appointed, or perhaps she was officially recognized by the elders of the church as one who spoke on behalf of God. We don't know. There's some documentation from early church history that she was the wife of one of the elders or, or she was the wife of one of the main leaders. That could be very well the case because sometimes they have a lot of influence in the life of the church. 
But nevertheless, she was self-styled or congregationally recognized as a prophet, one who was able to speak on behalf of God and teach God's truth. The problem was this. She was not speaking on behalf of God, and she was not speaking with God's truth. She was a false prophet. She was teaching errant doctrine. She was leading people astray by her reasonings from Scripture, by her teachings. She was leading people away from biblical morality. She was a false prophet. What she taught was not in alignment with God's will and God's word. Now, the name Jezebel is most likely symbolic. Uh, that's not a very common name nowadays. You're not going to really find it in a baby book for a name to name anybody. Jezebel is a name taken from the Hebrew Scriptures from the Old Testament. Jezebel was the queen of, of uh, one of the weak and wicked kings of the northern kingdom. And as such, she was a Gentile. Her dad was a priest, a high priest of a, of a pagan, of the pagan god Astart or Asheroth, you know, Roma, uh, Diana or Aphrodite and others. It's, it's all the same god, just with different names for different cultures. She was the goddess of fertility. Every pagan religion has that as an emphasis which is why we're seeing such a resurgence of sexual immorality and sexual sin today. The demons are running amok. But she was a Gentile that had married in to the, to the, the Israelite royal family there. And as such, she exerted undue influence over a very weak and wicked king. She actually arranged for many of God's faithful prophets to be put to death. And as, as her role, she instituted the worship of a Canaanite god, the god Baal, who was the rain god, the fertility, the, the, one of the other fertility type of gods, who was worshipped usually through a lot of perverse sex. She instituted that as a religion in competition with the, with the Israelite religion of worshiping Yahweh. So she brought great evil to the land. She enticed many of God's children into idolatry and into, to a, a, into sexual immorality that was outside of their covenant with the God Yahweh. In her role as a prophet, it's very common that this twisting of Scripture happens, especially with the doctrine of grace. She appealed to having special knowledge New revelation, new insights, deep truths of Scripture. These are all code words and buzzwords for people today who say the exact same things and entice people even today away from God's scriptural truth and scriptural commands, which are relatively plain and relatively simple. She twisted Scriptures to allow for sexual immorality, to allow for the, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, which was such a big deal back then because idols were everywhere. And I said most gods were worshipped through, through sacrifices of animals. And so the priests of these different gods would sacrifice an animal and they would use parts of it, but then there was usually a lot of meat left over, so then it would get sold, it would get resold to people 
usually at a, at a reduced rate because it had already been used and dedicated. And so Christians looked at this and they said, That's, that is something dedicated to a demon. We cannot participate in it. Now, there's other rules in Scripture where Paul says, basically, all those gods aren't real, so they're not really real gods. We don't need to worry about it. But it is a big issue. Because if we're going to compromise, if, we're, if you're going to be, if you're going to struggle in faith, it's going to be an issue. Then it needs to be an issue, and we need to abstain from that so that it's not an issue to offend others. But this eating of meat sacrificed to idols, she was able to excuse, saying, "It's okay. It's good stewardship because it's cheap, and God wants you to be a good steward. Wants you to manage your money well." So it's okay. Go and take advantage. Because we know there's no, there's, there's no real spiritual power from anything dedicated to a demon. For sexual immorality, she was saying, oh, you know, God knows, God understands. You see, you know, you, you have urges, you have drives, you have desires, you're kind of wired one way, you have some proclivities, and God knows that, and the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh. So, you know, if you just, you know, if, if you just, just be safe, be smart, be consensual. These are all lies today that are promoted so that Christians will engage in sexual immorality. You see, because God knows, God understands, God will forgive. She twisted Scripture to allow for these indulgences, these practices. Sexual immorality, just as a reminder, is any sexual activity outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Jesus says, do you not know at the beginning God created the male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, become one with his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is what God has designed from the beginning. And it doesn't mean if you're if you're single, that does not mean you're outside of God's will. It's just it's it's a it's a pattern. It's a divine design for how we are built, how we are wired, how we are constructed as men and as women. Sexual activity, the great blessing that it is, is to be reserved for marriage. Anything else outside of that is sexual immorality. The Greek word for immorality, by the way, is the word porneia which we get the word pornography, all-encompassing, everything outside of a marriage covenant. Jesus even has a comment. If for those who haven't participated in the immorality, for those who haven't embraced Satan's so-called dark secrets, Jesus is saying exactly what he thinks is the source of Jezebel's teaching. It's not God the Father. It's not God the Son. It is not God the Holy Spirit. It is not the word of God that is living and active and sharply a two-edged sword. It is directly from Satan to twist Scripture, to manipulate, to reinterpret, to weaken the message of God's word. It is most likely that she, though these two things were twisted by her so that the Christians in Thyatira could still participate in the guilds. They can still indulge in all of the frivolities of the celebrations of, of, of the worship of these false gods. 
and the immorality that was rampant within those different associations. She was excusing it away. The threats for unrepentance by Jezebel herself and those who follow her teaching are among the harshest in all of Scripture. There's no way to sugarcoat this. There's no way to to explain it away. There's no way to mitigate it. There's no way to make it sound nice. This is harsh language. She's going to continue to sin. She's going to have intense suffering. She is going to reap what she has sown. And her children, her children, they're going to be put to death. That's harsh language. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I have given her time to repent. This means that the Holy Spirit has already worked to convict her of her sin and to call her to repentance, and she has refused. She has remained steadfast in her stubbornness to distort and to pervert God's word. Possibly she has been confronted by other leaders as well. That's the way Jesus usually works. The Holy Spirit brings conviction upon the heart. And wise counsel, wise, gentle confrontation from those who know better to confront those in sin. But whatever it is, she has remained steadfast in her teaching of false doctrine. Those who participate with her in the teaching will face the consequences of intense suffering, very possibly disease from illicit sexual activity. And then her children. Her children are not those who participate. Her children are those who are those who perpetuate her teachings, who not only agree, but who then spread that teaching to others, who then infect other Christians with that heresy. Jesus said they will be struck dead. That means they will be judged. They will be ended. We leave that for whatever it may mean as Jesus seeks to, 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 to implement that. These are, harsh, those, these, these are harsh words from Jesus. And then comes the promise. For those who have indulged with her, those who, who align with her, The call is to repentance. But Thyatira is a church where many have not. Many have still stood strong. They have been faithful to God's word in their sexual morality and in their not participating in the things dedicated to demons. Jesus says, the one who is victorious is the one who does my will to the end. And that's what victory is, faithfulness in doing God's will until death. The victorious will exercise authority over the nations. To speaking to those who have no authority, but they are relegated to being tradesmen and craftsmen, to being, to being the working class. When all of the other cities were politically influential and and politically powerful, they were the elite. Thyatira was the blue-collar city. The -the run-of-the-mill city says, to you who are faithful, I will give the right to rule over the nations. And that's one of the great unsung, unknown promises of what it means to be a Christian. 
Apostle Paul talks in Romans and 1 Corinthians that we are co-heirs with Christ because as, as God's children, as those who believe in Jesus and have our sins forgiven through faith and have have a regeneration to new life through our belief in, 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 the, in the resurrection of Jesus. We are therefore co-heirs with Jesus and we will reign and rule over the nations. We will reign with him. Paul says this, and it's a little bit of different context, so it's, it's an argument embedded in the argument for something else, but here's what 1 Corinthians 6 says. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? He's talking about conflict in the church. Conflict in the church is to be resolved within the church. We're not to go out to outside to secular, to secular legal sources to resolve conflict. That's his point. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? He's saying, Get used to judging things internally because we're preparing for what's coming next. God's people will judge the world. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? That's part of the promise is that we, as God's children, our alignment with God's Son, Jesus, we will get to reign and rule with Him. Those, of who, those who've always been oppressed and second-tiered and put down in this world and have their place in life not among the elite, we will rule over the elite. It's a good promise. Jesus says, I will also give the one who is victorious the morning star. In the ancient world, that referred to the planet Venus. That had become a symbol of vanquishing enemies and a symbol of victory. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, by the way, I am the morning star. Venus has nothing. She's just another false god. And so the promise here is that we will reign with Jesus and that we will be with Jesus as the one who is victorious, the one who has vanquished his enemies, reigning and ruling in righteousness. So what's Jesus' message to us today? What is Jesus' message to the church at Oak Park? We've got to understand this. Jesus will not call us. He will not command us. He will not coerce us to do more than we are capable of doing. Every command of Jesus, every ethical principle he instills, and every revealed truth that he spoke, these are not burdensome. Yes, loving your enemies is tough. It is not impossible. Dying to self is tough. It is not impossible. Jesus does not call us to do something that is impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. And we do. We need, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. We need a devotion to God's word. We need God's word living within us. We need all of these things from God. But the commands, the principles, the truths of Scripture are not overwhelmingly burdensome. In fact, they're life-giving. And as we live in a culture that speeds more and more towards the darkness and the things of the demonic, we're seeing this more and more in the world. Broken lives, broken minds, broken hearts, and broken bodies have severe consequences. 
the teachings of Jesus, the ethical principles of Jesus, the truths that Jesus spoke, ultimately that he is the truth, alignment to him will pretty much solve and eradicate and repair every single issue of brokenness that our society is experiencing. Therefore, it's not burdensome. His commands, his truth, his principles, they're life-giving. Second of all, once again, there are so many voices out there today, even within the church, even within so-called Christian circles. Any teaching that encourages or excuses sexual immorality is unequivocally ungodly and unbiblical. There is no such thing as secret sin, by the way. But no matter what, here's the truth. Repentance is always available. Yes, we're going to struggle, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to sin, but repentance is available. No matter what we have done or even what has been done to us, what has been imposed on us, repentance and restoration is the path to healing. It is a lie of Satan that your sin is too great for God to forgive. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that is rejecting God's forgiveness through Jesus. Rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. Repentance is always there, always available. No matter how many issues we may have, the call is always from Jesus. The loving call is always to repent and to return. And lastly, no complacency. The Thyatirans were increasing in their faith, in their service, in their devotion, in their perseverance. Jesus says, I'm not going to lay any more burdens on you because you're already doing it. And this, this next sentence in the notes, it was sounded so perfect in my head. It doesn't read as good as it sounded in my head. So let's work through just a little bit. We don't and can't do more to get God's love, but the more we get God's love, the more we do because of that love. In my head, it's brilliant. And I'm not, hopefully it communicates on paper as well. We can't give more money and go to church more often and do more good works and read our Bible and memorize more verses. We don't do these things to get God's love. But once we truly get how high and wide and deep is the love of God for us through Christ, then we will be naturally compelled to read, to study, to memorize, to pray, to serve, to fellowship, to live more devotedly, to practice and exercise more self-control, to look to Jesus more and more for leadership in our lives because we understand how deep that love truly is. It is the love that fills every longing within our soul. And once we get that, 
Not that I think we can ever grasp it on this side of eternity. But once the love of God takes more root in our heart and takes, takes a bigger grip out of our lives, then we serve, we love, we give, we sacrifice, we forgive, and on and on. Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, book of Romans chapter 12, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It's impossible to do that 24-7, so there's some other things in Scripture, encourage one another, you know, be refreshed through repentance, all these kind of things. But as a church, as, as Jesus' message to the church at Oak Park, it is time, no complacency, let's up our zeal for serving one another, serving the Lord, serving our community, living more wholeheartedly and devotedly and living more wholly for Jesus, both W-H-O-L-L-Y and H-O-L-Y, holy and holy for Jesus. That's good. Somebody's got to write that down. (laughs) Thanks, Dottie. It'll be in the transcript like to have Tay and the team come back up on the stage as we prepare for a time of communion. This is part of the repentance. This is the returning to Jesus, which is actually for the Christian something we are to do every day, multiple times a day. Repent and return to Jesus.